As we come to the message time this morning, I invite you to have your Bibles open and turn to the text that we're going to be reading together. We are continuing our study of the book of Acts. We are now in chapter 25 this morning. We're just going to begin chapter 25 this morning, which means we're making our way to the end. There's only a couple of chapters left to go. We are still wrestling with Paul. We're still stuck in this situation, if you want to have it this way, with Paul. Paul went to Jerusalem despite everyone telling him, don't go there. It's not going to end well. And he went there knowing it was not going to end well. But he goes anyway because he knows that's where the Lord wants him to go. This is, in fact, what I just was praying. Now, very few of us have those kind of scenarios in our lives. Let's just understand something. Let's make sure we put things in context. I'm not minimizing the difficulties we have. But very few of us, by the way, are in situations where we're walking knowingly into a place that's going to hurt us, that may cost us our lives. When I say things like that, I don't know what happens to you, and I don't say this to to downgrade you or to make you feel bad about yourself, but I want to bring an awareness because sometimes we live in little bubbles where we we make things, we make our lives seem uh, maybe worse or maybe have, I don't know, just different than what they really are. I often think of things like this, and it reminds me, and I'll just say this about myself. You can apply it to yourself however you need to. I'm not making any comment about you. But it reminds me, uh, if I can use this sort of modern-day phrase, modern-day word, it reminds me of how much of a wuss I am sometimes. Or I think things are pretty bad, and yet I don't have situations like this, and most of you don't either. Think of what Paul did. They said, Paul, don't go there. And he said, inside of me, I know that everywhere I go, prison waits, possibly even death waits, beatings await me. Everywhere I go, things don't end well for me. I get thrown out. I get stoned. And yet, I'm going to go where God asked me to go. And he does that. He walks. He goes down to Jerusalem. And of course, exactly what everyone's expecting to happen happens. He gets arrested. He's now been imprisoned under Roman guard. He has freedom. He has people coming taking care of his needs. It's not like he's in some jail cell rotting away. But he certainly can't go do what he was doing before that, which was to travel the world and to plant churches and to encourage those churches and to share the gospel. But as you know, Paul, he's still sharing the gospel, isn't he? And this is not just a couple of weeks, right? We, we ended the text last week by saying that two years passed by and finally Felix was replaced by Festus, a guy named Porcius Festus. By the way, I was thinking of these words from, that David penned in the Psalms. I'm going to just put them up here before we jump in the text even. Look at how this, we're going to, you're going to be able to overlay this on the text from the last couple of weeks and even from the next couple of weeks. David wrote in Psalms 37, he said, The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power, to the wicked's power, or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. That's what David penned. Now, you might say, by the way, and you can, you can say this if you want to, I guess, but you might say that, you know, there's just, this is how things work, that there's all kinds of these kinds of coincidences. But I would submit to you that we ought to look at things like this and just marvel at the power of God and the insight of God and the incredibleness, that's not really a word, but the incredibleness of God's word. That David spoke these words so long ago and probably spoke in some degree about himself and yet so aptly described a situation that was going to unfold years and years, centuries down the road. Here we find Paul. The wicked are seeking to kill him, but God is not going to abandon him to their power and nor is he going to let him be condemned when brought to trial. Let's read Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Now, three days... 
Three days after Festus had arrived in the province. So right away when he became uh, in control of, the, of that province, he became governor of that province. Three days, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Caesarea was the official capital of his region. But we might understand that Jerusalem was sort of the, uh, the, the practical capital, if you will. And because that's where the majority of people lived. That's sort of where the seat of power was. And part of that was due to, to the Jewish people themselves. However, he goes from Caesarea to Jerusalem. It says in verse 2, The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Sounds kind of like a broken record, right? After he stayed among them, verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, when he came back home, and the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, verse 12, or final verse for today, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Lord God, it's your word. We want you to speak to us. We want it to be more than just the breaking part of the text that we understand historically, although we want that too. We want you to impact us with the truth of your word. We want the incredible aspect of the word, the incredible capacity of the word to leap off the pages and into our own lives to happen here this morning with us. I'm continually amazed, God, how you can take a text that is a historical record of things happening and speak truth to us. And we just invite you to do it again this morning to us. Have your way with us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to break down the sermon. We're going to start right with the very first verse there. And we're going to pick apart some details, step through the text so that we can understand it in a historical context and then see what it has to say to us today. It says after three days, Festus was newly in his position, and he immediately goes to Jerusalem. And I have no doubt that part of that is, in fact, to sort of meet with or to, to, to come to terms with the seat of power that's in Jerusalem, which is the Jewish council. They, by the way, if you understand how the, how the, how the area worked, now right in Caesarea, there's not as much Jewish influence. But for the majority part of his region, there's a huge Jewish population, and they mostly are controlled by the Sanhedrin, which means as the Sanhedrin goes is where the Jews will go. So if you are the governor of that region, it would be smart of you, it would be wise of you to make sure you connect with those people and make sure that they are on the same page with you, perhaps. Or to make sure that you kind of get them under your thumb if that's what, it, what you're interested in. So he goes to Jerusalem. And by the verb tense that's shared, immediately, immediately, 
they lay out their case against Paul. It doesn't take long. You get this sense that they are barely in the conversation. They are barely making acquaintance. Hi, I'm Festus. Hi, I'm the leader of the Sanhedrin, whatever his name is. All these people, they're barely in the conversation. And they begin to immediately say, hey, there's a guy, Caesarea. His name is Paul, and this is what we have against him. And it's not just once, because again, the verb tense, as it says, they urged him. It's, it's continual. It's more than once. It's like they press him, and they press him again. They're not going to let him go. They don't, they're, they're nagging him. They're saying, we want Paul to come down here to Jerusalem. Now notice, I'm going to point out something, a word here, because it's a word that appears three times, or a form of the word, appears three times in the text today. It says they ask as a favor against Paul. That word favor is the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. Most often translated, by the way, as grace. So when you see the word grace in the New Testament, it's typically the word charis. We ask as a gift from you. Now, actually, in this case, as a gift against Paul, which is kind of oddly phrased, but think about what the, the import of those words phrased that way. That's exactly what they were doing, Right? They didn't care so much about anything else. We ask as a gift against Paul. I mean, that's not really a gift, but that's what they were asking for. Against him, this man that you are holding, we want him to be brought to Jerusalem. Now, mind you, how many years have passed since Paul has been held in Caesarea? How long has it been? Two years Keep that, I mean, if you haven't already been thinking about it, keep that tucked away back here because the very rest of that phrase that I haven't put up there yet, the rest of the sentence is, why did they want Paul brought to Jerusalem? So he could have a fair trial there? Why? Two years later, remember the vow they made? Some men got together and said, we won't eat or drink. I don't think it was the same men, or at least I don't think they kept their vow because they wouldn't have lasted that long. But two years, this is where they're still at. This is still what's, what's fomenting inside of them, right? Two years later, they said, bring him to Jerusalem. We have one intent, and that is to ambush him on the way, and we're going to kill him. We will not rest until this man is dead. This is not where the message is going this morning, so I'm not going to take a lot of time. But can I tell you, once again, this is why the Bible speaks so heavily, so clearly on the necessity of forgiveness. Look at what is happening with the, now I don't, I can't say this definitively because we don't have the biblical text to, to, to prove this out, but you must imagine, you must understand that if after two years, the moment Festus is in charge, the moment they've access to him, they pester and they press and they urge and they say, bring Paul here because we're going to kill him. You know what has been topmost in their priority for two whole years as a leader of the Jewish nation. Instead of keeping their nation true to God's, what he wanted, instead of doing what they're supposed to be doing, leading God's people, what have they been spending all their time doing? Wringing their hands at how they can kill Paul. You understand, now this is, this is taking away from there and bringing it to us. You understand what happens in our lives when we don't forgive things that we think people are, are, have offended us, or when maybe they actually really have offended us. I'm not, I'm not discounting that at all. When we, when we refuse to forgive, it puts us in that place where that we spend all of our time focused on that. All of our time worried about that instead of doing what we're supposed to be doing. Instead of, instead of living the rest of our lives as God has asked us, we are wringing our hands and wondering, how can I get back at this person? How can I make them pay for what they did to me? By the way, just say this. As good Christians going to church most of our lives, I know that most of us would say, well, we know what the Bible has to say about that, and we don't vocally say, I want to make them pay. 
But the reality is, by the actions in our lives, that is exactly what we are doing. When we're not willing to forgive people, that's exactly what we're doing. We may, that's why, by the way, that is why it causes such angst inside of us, because it's called a dichotomy. When our minds, our hearts, are, I mean, when our, our words, our minds say, I know I should forgive, and I, I don't hold things against people, but our hearts are saying, I want to make them pay for this. I refuse to forgive them. It takes your whole focus, and you spend possibly years with that as what's right in front of you. That's all you can see. That's all you're worried about. It eats at you. It changes the whole focus of your life. I mean, look at the, these were people tasked with leading God's people. And by appearances, they've been spending the last two years figuring out how they can kill Paul. What appears, by the way, that Festus kind of puts them off and gives them a negative answer, I don't think, as we see later in the text, I don't think that's what he really is doing. I think he's more uh, just uh, making it more convenient for him. He says, ah, you know, Paul's up there already. I'm going to go there pretty soon. Why don't we just do this where it's supposed to be done? In fact, that's the verse I'm going to put up there because he says to them, hey, you know what? I'm going to head to Caesarea. Why don't you, some of the men of authority, come with me, join me in my trip, and we'll see where this ends up. Again, I, we're going to see in the next couple of verses here, I don't think Festus is really trying to, you know, come to Paul's defense in any way or try to say, you know, I think he's really just saying it'd be a lot more convenient for me. I'm going to go back there anyway. It's where my, where my house is, where my, my capital is, where my, my ruling power is. I'm going to go back there. Why don't you come here on my turf and we'll do that up there. And so they do that. And immediately when he comes back home, he stays with them. Now, depending on what translation you're reading, it may actually say uh, more than 10 days. Uh, there's some question of how, exactly how that phrase, what it means there. Uh, but it, uh, the sense is it's about that time frame, 10 days. So either it's just a day longer or just under that. And he goes uh, from there back home to Caesarea. And the very next day, we're going to go to this verse because this is the verse I want to focus on. The next day, he takes his seat at the tribunal and he brings Paul. This is the place where they make judgments. Now, by the way, the word for tribunal is the Greek word bema. Three, four letters, B-E-M-A, Bema. You don't need to know that word, except it actually refers to a step. And it refers to where they would stand, the accused would stand, while the judge sits and hears the case. They would stand there on the Bema. And as you get this scene, by the way, you see, here come the Jews, same ones, here comes Paul, same guy, new guy sitting here now, by the way, Right? And they begin to, again, level all kinds of accusations against him, none of which they can prove. By the way, let me, let's just, let me remind you, think back to Acts chapter 6. This is not unusual to Paul. This is not new to Paul, by the way. Acts chapter 6 is the scene where a man named Stephen, who was a man filled with the power of God, and was able to refute all the Jews because of who he said Jesus was, and they couldn't stand against him. So what did they do? They resorted to hiring people to have people say untrue things about Stephen so they could accuse him. And they do exactly that. They bring in front of the Sanhedrin. They bring these false witnesses. They say all these things that can't be proven. And in the end, Stephen is accused and he's killed. And guess who's there when that's happening? Paul is. Now, he's on the other side that time, right? He's still Saul. He's actually on the side of those falsely accusing. He knows how this works. He knows what the Jewish leaders are going to do. He knows that that's exactly what he himself used to do. When you could not prove something against someone, then you just found false witnesses. It's in fact the exact same thing that happened to Jesus, isn't it? 
They tried and tried and tried, and when they finally couldn't, they finally got some false witnesses to step up and say, here's what Jesus said and did, until they finally got him. This is not new. I suspect to most of us, had we been in Paul's place, we would have felt the despair of how this is going to go, because we know where this is going to end up. They're going to stay there, and they're going to keep saying things that aren't true until they get their man. But I want to remind you of something else. Because the Jews think that they're going to do exactly what they've always done to accuse this man, even though it's unfounded. And Festus thinks that he's here and he's charging and he's going to be the one making judgments. And Paul may even think he's going to defend himself. But they're standing at the Bema. They're standing in a human court, which is liable to be twisted, which is open to the influence of bribery. Remember Felix, all the while he was hoping that Paul was going to give him some money so that he could let him go? It's open to injustice. In fact, many times injustice happens, not justice. But there is a bema. There is a tribunal where righteous, true, just judgments will happen. In fact, Paul, the very man who's standing on the bema this day we're reading, is going to write about that to the Corinthians in his second letter. He says, for we must all appear before the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're reading a story about a man who really lived a long time ago, who really went through these things and really faced a miscarriage of justice. By now, if you haven't already figured it out, it's a miscarriage of justice. The man is innocent. Pretty much everyone involved knows that man is innocent, and yet he continues to be kept under the, the control of Rome. He continues to be booted back. He continues to be put off. He continues to have not justice carried out for him. But we want to see that the truth behind this, that the, the shell of what's on in, in, in actual world is really representing something that will someday happen and it will be the true and right judgments for every one of us. That we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you will answer for what you've done in the body, whether it's good or bad. That is a bema none of us will escape. I submit to you, and I think you already know this, but I submit to you that that should weigh somehow into what you do with your life. That should somehow affect the choices you're making. That should somehow have an influence over what you decide to do and who you decide to follow and what, what, what the outcomes of your life is going to be, for you will answer for those things. Never, ever forget that there is a Bema coming. By the way, I just mentioned there's a gross miscarriage of justice, right? Which means most of us, if we were in Paul's place, we would be screaming and kicking and shouting, this is not fair, right? And Paul does defend himself. You'll see that in a bit. But I want to remind us first of Jesus' own words. Because I have no doubt that there's times, we have not maybe been in that situation, but there's times where we have had things happen to us unfairly, right? People say things about us that aren't true. And they're going to keep pushing and pushing until they get their man or their woman. And we don't think it's fair. And Jesus said these words when he taught us, when he was trying to teach us how God's way revolutionizes and changes how we look at things. He said, blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We were just talking about the Bema. So let's stay with that, to that, that topic, that subject. Because Jesus says, listen, you need to flip around what you think is right in your head. You need to shift that around. You need to think about it differently. Because while you think it's all unfair here, you know that there's a Bema coming. And if people say things unfairly about you and accuse you and revile you and lie about you and mistreat you on his account... It will be unfair here, but great is your reward there, that day when you stand on the true Bema, when the true judgment will be made. Let us be less concerned about getting our due justice here and more concerned about the due justice that will come there. Can we find it in ourselves to surrender our will such that, to the Lord Jesus Christ, such that we can say, Blessed it is when people say all kinds of untrue things about me for Jesus' sake. Rejoice and be glad, for I know that someday the righteous, right, true judge will be the one that justifies, will be the one that has a great reward for me. Festus begins to show his true colors there, right? We read in verse 9, these words, but Festus, here's our word again for today, Charis, but Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor, he says to Paul, do you wish, how about this, Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges there before me? Now, I want us to understand something, because this sentence, while we read it in English and may just sort of assume we know what's happening, I want to submit to you that there's probably a little bit more going on behind what he's saying than what we may at, at, at sort of surface level see. Because what's really happening is by his words here, when he says before me, he's actually not saying that I'm going to be the one judging. It will be in my presence. In other words, what he's saying is, Paul, should we go down to Jerusalem and you can stand trial before the Sanhedrin in my presence so you have sort of my guarantee, quote unquote, that I'll kind of make sure things are going like they should. But they're the ones making the judgment. That's why Paul's going to respond the way he does, by the way. In some sense, Festus is saying, I'm proposing that I may abdicate my duty a bit here. I'm the guy who's in charge here, but I may abdicate that a bit. And I'm going to do so as a favor. Remember the pestering, the urging, as a gift against Paul? This time Festus says, I want to give a gift to the Jews. As a gift to the Jews, as grace to them, maybe I should send you down to Jerusalem, Paul, and let them judge you for the matters that you're bringing. For they involve what they have to say, these charges against you. They involve your temple and your rules, the Jews, and those kind of things. Is that what we should do? Which is why we get the response in verse 10. This is for our final section here because Paul says, wait a minute. He starts sensing this is going to be going sideways a bit here. And he says, wait a minute. I'm standing in the tribunal, the Bema of Caesar. Now, it's not actually him yet. It's his under tribunal, if you want to call it that, his under court. But that's where I'm supposed to be. That's where I am. And that's where I'm supposed to be. Now, Paul utilizes something here which... Uh, if you study things like this, they call it reverse parallelism. Let me illustrate it for you. He makes an argument using reverse parallelism. He starts off by going this way, and he comes back to where he's at to make his point. So let me just illustrate it for you. He says, A, I'm before Caesar's court, and that's where I should be. 
That's where I belong. B, I haven't done anything wrong against the Jews, which is why I'm not in their court. I haven't done anything wrong against the Jews. Notice, by the way, what he says here. It's important to point this out. He says, and by the way, Festus, you know this. You are well aware of this. You see, there was not even, there was not even a, a shadow of doubt in Paul's mind that Festus absolutely knew what was going on. All these things happening in front of him on the surface, he knew what was happening behind him. We're going to see in a little bit how much Paul really understood. And I think it's by the gift of, of the Holy Spirit that he really understood what was happening behind the scenes. But he says, you know I haven't done anything wrong. So I'm in Caesar's court where I belong. I have done nothing against the Jews, no wrong against that, and you know that. So see, I want to make sure I point out, however, if I have done something wrong, I'm not trying to escape it. This is not me trying to get out of something. You see what he's trying to say? He's going he's to set up for what he's going to say at the end. He, keep, he, went, he went in like this. He said, by the way, this is not me trying to get out of something. I'm not trying to escape. If I've done something wrong, I, I'll pay for it. However, the fact of the matter is, this is where he starts moving back in. The fact of the matter is, if I'm not guilty of wrong, then you can't hand me over to them, to the Jews, because I haven't wronged them. By the way, I, I kind of skipped over, but his defense that he's already said at this point is he makes sure of a couple things. He makes sure he assures uh, Festus that as a Christian, I have not violated the roots of our faith, the Jews. I've, I've, not, I've not violated the Ju- Judaism or the temple or anything like that. Also, as a Christian, I have not subverted the civil order of Rome. I've not done anything against Caesar. That's why I'm innocent, and you know it. If I'm not guilty of doing wrong against the Jews, then I can't be handed over to them. And then he goes back one final step, because this is where he's going to end up. And since you're not going to do what's right, Festus, since you're trying to squirm your way out of this, you're trying to abdicate your responsibility in the undercourt of Caesar, which is where I belong, since you're not going to do what's right, I appeal to Caesar, to the higher court. This is why Paul ends up with that last phrase, I appeal to Caesar. I don't know if you ever wondered that, by the way. Like, Paul, why did you do that? Now, maybe you might think it's because he's like, I want to end up in Rome. I don't think that's true. I mean, he knows that's the Lord is going to take him there eventually. And he does want to go to Rome. But I think he's understanding in the situation that's happening. He knows what's going on behind the scenes, underneath the surface of things. And he says, listen, I'm where I'm supposed to be. I haven't done anything wrong against the Jews. By the way, I'm not trying to get out of this. I'm not trying to escape my punishment. But I haven't done anything wrong against the Jews. And if I haven't, you can't hand me over to them. But since you're not going to do what you're supposed to do, which is to, be, to release me, I appeal to Caesar. I want to move this up the chain. Now, I'm going to, before I get to the very last sentence of our text here today, I want to insert a couple of things. And the first is a point of application. Remember Paul's middle point? If I have done something wrong, I'm not trying to escape. You know, something that, uh, again, our children are often very instructive to us as adults. My children will do just about anything possible to escape the blame when something goes wrong. I'm assuming many of you have children, your children are the same way. They will do just about anything they can to say it was not my fault. To get out of their punishment. Now I, I, I say to us adults that that's illustrative to us because the reality is we're much the same way. Right? We can, we can kind of like laugh and chuckle and say, yeah, kids are always like that. You know what? Adults are always like that too. Most times. We don't like to receive the blame. There's something instructive in Paul's statement. I'm not trying to get out of what's coming to me if I've done something wrong. 
Once again, by the way, we began with, a, with something David wrote in the Psalms. Once again, I want to lay this back against something that David wrote in the Psalms. In chapter 7 of Psalms, in verses 3 through 5, David says this. Listen to his words. He says, O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is any wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Let it be so. You see in David, we see the same awareness, the same recognition, the same desire as we saw in Paul. If I've done something wrong, if I have sinned, I'm not trying to, I recognize that's against you, God. I'm not trying to wiggle out of my punishment. That is the opposite, by the way, of what our flesh wants to do. We want to do everything we can to wiggle out of the punishment. By the way, if I can say this, that is why we tend to run away from true repentance instead of toward it like we ought to. Because this is what is part of true repentance, is saying, if I have done something wrong against you, God, I will pay for it. I'm gonna push a little bit on that. The reason I say that so strongly is because that's exactly what Jesus told us in the story of the prodigal son. Do you ever think about that? In the story of the prodigal son, we have the perfect laid out definition of what, of what true repentance is. You remember the son? He wastes everything. He goes off and he, he's left finally where he's feeding the pigs and he wishes he could eat what the pigs were eating. He's sitting there among the slop, the dirt, the dust, the mud, whatever all else. He's probably reeking to high heaven and he wakes up one day, right? And what does he say? He says, I'm gonna get up and go back to my father and I'm going to say this to my dad. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be your son. All I want to do is if I could at least be a servant in your house. In that, we have the definition of what true repentance looks like. An awareness that we have sinned against God and probably against someone else as well. And a willingness to get up and to go back to them, to tell them exactly that. But did you notice the, the, the third part of that? I don't deserve to be your son anymore. I just want to be your servant. Most of us who have grown up in the church with an awareness of forgiveness, which forgiveness is fantastic. Forgiveness is amazing. I'm so, so, please don't misunderstand me. I'm so grateful that Jesus forgave us when he died on the cross, that that's, that that's what happened. But when we're so familiar and comfortable with that, sometimes it makes us jump to the end without recognizing the middle where we don't want to own up to it and say, if I've sinned against you, God, or when we're repenting, I have sinned against you, I don't deserve to be your son or daughter. I don't deserve that. I'll take that punishment. Can I just be a servant, God? I recognize I deserve to be demoted, and I'm willing to do that. He came, the son came back to his father in that story with the full expectation that he would not ever be treated like a son again. I would submit to you that is the root of true repentance. I deserve nothing from you, God. It is encapsulated in this mindset. If I have sinned against you, if I've done something wrong, I'll pay for it. That, by the way, is what enables me to tell you, what enables God's word to tell us the incredible great, great news that Jesus paid for it already. It's paid for. You don't have to. But I tell you, you need to be willing to. Thank the Lord you don't have to. That's what opens the door for us to say, yes, Jesus, everything I have, I throw on you. 
By the way, I don't think we ever will do that if we think that we just get the forgiveness without actually being willing to pay for it. I'm so grateful. Maybe that's confusing to you and I don't want to be confusing. I'm so grateful that Jesus has paid for it, that it's there. So grateful. It really is true. I deserve nothing from the Lord. I have, I have walked away from him. I have walked in my pride. I have let my anger control me. I have let the impure things inside of me take lead. I deserve nothing from the Lord. But I'm so glad that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That he said, what you need to do is come and cry out to the Lord. That you need to believe that Jesus died for you and he's brought back to life. And you need to confess that he's your Lord and you will be saved. I don't deserve to be your son, God, but I'd love to be a servant in your house. Can I do that? I want to make one final connection before we get to that last verse because I want to tell you how I believe to say pretty firmly this morning that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul knew absolutely what was happening behind the scenes even when he didn't see it on the fabric on the surface. Because he says to them in verse 11, there's something very specific that when you're reading, at least in the ESV translation, it is not easily picked up. He says, but if there's nothing to their charges against me, then no one can give me up to them. The word he uses there for give me up is the word Kerizamai, which again, you don't need to know that word, but it is the middle voice of the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. What he's saying is, if I have not done anything wrong against them, then I cannot be gifted to them. Do you wonder how Paul knows to use that word? Why does he use the word gifted? Nowhere in any of the conversation that I'm aware of is Paul aware that, that that's what's going on, that the Jews approached Festus and said, as a gift, would you give him to us? And Festus, wanting to give them a gift, said, hey, why don't we move to Jerusalem? Isn't it amazing by the Holy, power, the Holy Spirit power of God that Paul uses that specific word? He said, by the way, if I've done nothing wrong against them, then no one can gift me to them. I can't be gifted to them. He knows exactly what's going on behind the scenes. He knows who's, who's trying to pull whose favor, who thinks they're in charge, who's trying to put who in a position of, of, of owing someone else. And he says, listen, I haven't done anything wrong against them. And if that's true, you cannot gift me. Can you, I, I, I would love, I, I, don't know, I don't know how this happened, but I have no doubt. You know, they, they were speaking a language where this would have been made clear. I have no doubt that there's some measure of Festus and his face just dropped. Why did Paul use that exact word? That he's, as he's thinking to himself, you know, as a gift to them, let's see if we can just move this to Jerusalem. And Paul looks at him and says, if I haven't done anything wrong, you cannot gift me to them. What? How did you know what I was thinking inside of me? Right? It reminds me of something. It reminds me, well, let, let me get the last verse in. Let me get the last, last verse in. Because as Festus, as, uh, we should get this since we've done with it. As Festus um, confers with his council, you know he's not doing this by himself. There's a council of leaders. He's supposed to confer with them. Otherwise, he's going to get the weight for anything that goes wrong. And he wants to sort of distance himself from that. So he confers with them and he says, you know what? I was going to try to take it that way, but he took it out of my hands now because I have no choice. As a Roman citizen, if he appeals to Caesar, I have to give him that. I, there's, there's nothing I can do anymore. And so he says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. But it reminds me of this. This is what I was going to say to end this with. It reminds me of this. Here we have this scene. And I said this a little bit earlier already, but I'm going to say it again. 
The Jewish leaders think they're going to be charged. They're going to pull favors. They're going to say this or that. Paul, to some degree, might even think that he's going to work his way in here. He's going to use his Roman citizenship. He's going to use the, you know, this, this, he's this wonderful ability to, to sort of stack arguments and say, this is why this should happen. And then you have the guy who's Festus, and he said, I, he thinks he's really in charge. You may even have a guy waiting at the end in Rome. His title is Caesar, and he thinks he's in charge. And yet, look at the words that Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3.37. This, is this not the heartbeat, the summary of the book of Acts? Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? All of those people who thought they knew, who thought they had some measure of control in the situation, who thought they could pull strings and, and give favors and grant things, all of that in one set aside to recognize who has ever spoken and it came to pass unless God commanded it, unless God said that's the way it's going to be. Now that whether you want to acknowledge it or not, that has to hit home with us today because it has not changed. We are no Festuses or Caesars or Jewish leaders or Pauls. But it has not changed. That's why James wrote the words he did. Oh, those of you who say, tomorrow I'm going to do this and this and go to there and do this and that. If the Lord wills, this will happen. Because no one will say things and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it, has spoken, has said this is where it's at. Will you yield yourself to the sovereignty of God? God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the goodness that you bring. Thank you for the mercy that we experience daily. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, God. I mean, it, it should be no secret. We should be free to say it. We, we miss it so many times. We, we sin. We transgress. We go against what your word has said. We go against what you have spoken to us. We go against what you have revealed about, about yourself and what you want from us. We misunderstand. Our passions, our flesh gets in the way. And yet your faithfulness your faithfulness is just incredible. It's stupendous, God. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's undeserved. Thank you. Thank you for the word this morning. I pray that every point of contact that your word makes with our heart that touches somewhere deep inside of us that is necessary for us, that you would press that word in, that you would give us the grace to yield ourselves and humble ourselves before you, to receive with humility the word implanted that it may save us. Equally, I pray, God, that anything that was said that was not from you, that is not true, that you would strike it from the record. And if necessary, you would let me know and I could make it public to strike it from the record. But however you choose to do it. But we want you to be glorified. We want your truth to go forth. We want your word to reign in our lives. We want to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We want to walk according to the Spirit. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand this morning?
We just prayed, God, that we would walk according to the Spirit, so I invite you to cloak us with the Holy Spirit, that we would put him on as if, as if a jacket, that we would walk according to his desires and his will inside of us, whether that's to proof us, to correct us, to exhort us, to encourage us, or in any case, to, to make us ready to walk fitly before you. We want to go under the banner of the name of Jesus Christ. We say this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you go in peace this morning?